Hello and welcome to another episode of Two Guys in a Chainsaw. I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. Happy New Year, Craig. Happy New Year. Well, here we are, uh, second episode into the new year. We did our Jaws episode last week, which was a request. And uh, we decided that mm, to shake things up a little bit, we would do a month of anthologies. Since we haven't done a theme month in a while. Yeah. Unless you count our typical Christmas <laughs> theme month. Right. Uh, and actually, this concept has been suggested by a couple of our listeners, and some of our listeners have uh, suggested some anthology films, which are on our list and we'll probably get to. But this one, uh, as far as I'm concerned, and I might be the most of the two of us who's enthusiastic about doing anthology movies. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I, I love anthology movies, but you've been wanting to do this forever, so I'm glad that we're finally getting around to it. Me too. And without a doubt, the very first one on my list that uh, we just absolutely have to do is Tales from the Crypt from 1972. Uh, I mean, I think I've talked about my love affair with the Tales from the Crypt comics on one or two of our other episodes. Um, for those of our listeners who don't know or who haven't heard those episodes, this movie is directly licensed and based on that Tales from the Crypt property. And to make a long story short, back in the 1950s, horror comics were a big thing. And there was one company that just sort of seemed to excel above all the others, and that was EC Comics entertaining comics. Um, William Gaines was the editor there and writer of a lot of the stuff. And uh, they took their inspiration from the old radio dramas, especially Lights Out, where there would be some tale, usually with an O. Henry-type twist ending to it. You know, they're pretty moral tales, really. Mm -hmm. Usually the bad guy gets what's coming to him. And they had a whole series of these comic books, which were wildly popular, especially with children, as you can imagine. And they were the Tales from the Crypt and the Vault of Horror and the Haunt of Fear. They had similar style stories in their books called Crime Suspense Stories and Shock Suspense Stories. They even had one called Combat Tales, which also went into this realm as well. So, Or Two-Fisted Tales and Combat Tales. And, and so they really excelled in this type of anthology storytelling. Every one of their comic books had like five stories in them. And each one of them were hosted by a different host. So the Vault Keeper hosted the Vault of Horror. And the Crypt Keeper hosted uh, Tales from the Crypt. And the Old Witch hosted The Haunt of Fear. Later on, of course, many of us are probably familiar with the HBO series Tales from the Crypt, which again drew from the same material. One of the requirements of using their license, William Gaines, the owner of the, of the, of the licenses, absolutely insisted that all of the stories in both this movie... And there was a sequel to it called The Vault of Horror. And then, of course, even in the newest uh, HBO adaptation, all had to pull their material from the original stories in the comic book. And, of course, they modified them a little bit, stretched yeah. them out, put some different twists on them. But all of them have roots in this comic book, which, which is really cool. Mm -hmm. And I used to read these comics. I'm not old enough to have been around in the 50s, but they reprinted these comics in the early 90s. They were reprints on the shelves. They were really beautiful, hardbound uh, copies of original artwork from these that were going up on the shelves. And so I have a huge collection of these at home, which I just love reading through. And it's really fun to watch the Tales from the Crypt episodes and this movie because I distinctly remember 
almost every single one of the actual stories, reading them for the first time uh, in the pages of that comic book, which just had great artwork, mm-hmm. delicious descriptions. It just what a wonderful thing uh, for a kid, which, uh, by the way, was sort of cut short because a lot of parents got worried about these comics. And there was a very famous book written called Seduction of the Innocent, in which um, a child psychologist who wrote it, Frederick Wortham, claimed that put up an argument anyway, that comic books in general, but particular horror and crime comic books, were creating juvenile delinquency. Long, old story, right? Now mm-hmm. it's supposedly video games. <laughs> right. But, but um, that caused such an uproar and such alarm that there was actually testimony in front of Congress about it. Frederick Wortham came in. William Gaines, who was the publisher of these comics, had to come in and defend them. At the end of the day, the industry decided that instead of waiting for the government to regulate them, they would take a page from the movie industry, which went through a similar thing, and regulate themselves. And so they created the Comics Code, which had this sort of, it would look right now very puritanical, (laughs) but um, just a list of things that the comics could and could not do and could and could not say and what kind of words could they use and what kind of themes could they have and how far could the artwork go. And uh, the superhero comics passed most of that without any problem, but all of these crime and horror comics just could not stay on the shelves uh, in their present form. But EC Comics lived on because, thankfully, in their stable, they also had a, a little-known property called Mad Magazine, yep. which turned out to be an ever even bigger hit, as we all know. So they turned out okay. But these books, oh, God, these comics are great, and we've got a lot of movies based on the material that we can talk about. And Mm -hmm. here we are with Tales from the Crypt 1972. I've said too much about it already, but I'm interested to know, Craig, if you had seen this before. No, I hadn't, and I'm kind of surprised. I guess maybe it's just the fact that it's older and I typically don't seek those out, but I'm still surprised because Tales from the Crypt on HBO in the 90s was like my favorite show. I absolutely Hmm. loved it. I thought it was uh, just, it it had a really wicked tone to it, but it also had a lot of humor. Now, granted, the humor was dark. I mean, it it was often really dark humor, but it was funny. The Crypt Keeper character, especially, right? He adds, like, levity to the whole thing. Definitely, and uh, I miss that guy. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. He's he's kind of iconic to my adolescence, and you know the the television series went on for quite some time, and for whatever reason, it drew huge names. Um, Oh yeah, you you know, big big stars would appear in these twenty five minute shorts big directors would come in and direct them and they varied in tone and quality but overall uh i just really really enjoyed them i don't remember when they were on it was like friday or saturday night or something but i would make a point to see them and i had a lot of them on vhs uh for a long time they jumped from hbo into syndication so you could actually see this on one or two networks maybe cable yeah, network or something maybe tbs right? or something i don't remember i but think so yeah. yeah i actually i was just you know i was looking around at uh tales from the crypt stuff and you can get the entire series on dvd for like a hundred bucks yeah and i was really tempted to click on it but then i was like do I even have a DVD player? <laughs> <laughs> I have that. I have the whole series on DVD. And I, I always ask myself that same question. When am I going to be able to actually whip it out and play it? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> by the time I get back home to my DVD collection, I I don't know if I'll be able to buy a DVD in a, <laughs> a <Yeah>. player anywhere. <laughs> Who knows? I don't I don't think they are, but I didn't look into it. But maybe someday, and if they already are, I, I feel remiss for having missed it. But maybe someday they'll be available streaming, like on HBO Max oh, or something. I hope so. But anyway, yeah. So, I mean, that's my my major history. So, I, I was fami- familiar with the concept, very familiar with the title, and uh, I was looking forward to seeing it, and I wasn't disappointed. The only thing that separates this from what I'm accustomed to is there's less emphasis on humor here. This is just pretty dark. But yeah. it does follow the formula, like you said, of these morality plays where bad people do bad things and end up getting what's coming to them, which I I think is just something that is in our human nature to find satisfying. Mm-hmm. We like seeing people get their comeuppance. <laughs> yeah. You don't know you don't always see that in real life, you know, the bad guys kind of usually get away with it in real life so it's refreshing to see people get theirs it's so true and it's interesting because even in the tales from the crypt series not all of them had to do with the supernatural because again the, I, I was telling you you know they had these shock suspense stories crime suspense stories they would do the same sort of format and formula but it would be a, a jilted lover who murders her husband and then kind of ends up getting it in an ironic way or you know there's a lot of human drama as well in these stories that has nothing to do with ghosts or spirits or zombies or right. or the supernatural and and so like you said it's it's like uh, we know these sorts of things do happen and we want to always sort of see justice served so it's it's good to see that happen I first saw this movie before I started reading the comics because I saw it in the mid to late 80s on TV it was one of those th- you know Saturday afternoon thriller chillers mm-hmm. that came on after the cartoons which I always waited around for, and oftentimes would be a Hammer production of Dracula or something with Christopher Lee or something like that. But in this case, this was produced by Amicus Productions. And Amicus was another British studio, kind of had their heyday also in the 70s when Hammer was producing a lot of stuff, whereas Hammer did a lot of gothic horror, Dracula, Frankenstein, kind of remakes of those and and kind of bringing them up into a more modern day, a little more gory, a little more sex and, and some nudity in them. Amicus seemed to just produce anthology horror films. And instead of making them gothic, I don't think they ever did a single gothic one. I think they were all more these modern day like settings. And I think the reason for that is because they could be done cheaper. You know, you don't have to dress up a set. You don't have to have fancy costumes. You just, all the action happens in somebody's apartment or down the street or sure. the house. And this movie definitely is is just like that. Uh, with the exception of the wraparound story, there's nothing terribly fancy in the setting of, of any of these stories of what's right. going on. And and I will say the movie, looking back at it now, does in a way feel a little cheap in that way. But as a kid, it made a huge impression on me. Because the wraparound story, after the credits and spooky music over graveyard scenes in the middle of the day, you get a tour group going through some catacombs in England somewhere. And the tour guide says to this group of people, These catacombs are dangerous, and I must warn you to stay with me and not lose your way. And so this group goes along, and the last five people in this group are headed up by... And it's a long line going through these narrow catacombs. Are headed up by Joan Collins. Yeah. (laughs) Which is weird. I knew she was in this, but it took me a second. Like, I had to do a double take because Mm. all my life, 
And I mean this with every ounce of respect. All my life, Joan Collins has been an old woman. Yeah, look, at least middle-aged, right? Not, yeah. Not, like, super young as she is in this one. Jeez. Right. I mean, I guess when I was a kid and she was on whichever one of those shows she was on, Dallas, Dallas. or whatever it was. Yeah. I mean, she wasn't old, but me being a little kid, she was older, you know. And um, But here, she's very young and very beautiful. And, and honestly, I don't really know a whole lot about her career at this time or before. I'm just familiar with the stuff that happened during my lifetime. Mm. Um, so it was neat. It was neat to see her kind of in her physical prime. She looks amazing. Oh, yeah. She's just a beautiful, almost like, kind of like a classic 70s European beauty, you know, with her hair and her makeup and everything. Uh, I mean, she's American. And she just has really unique, beautiful bone structure. I mean, she's just... Oh, yeah. Uh, she's... And she's still, I mean, I haven't seen her recently. I have no idea how old she is now. I I believe she's still alive. I think so. But uh, the last time I saw her, I mean, she was certainly elderly, but still just stunningly beautiful. Well, I mean, her career stretches back to like the early 1950s, like 1951, um, in black and white movies. And she was doing a lot of movies, just like multiple movies a year. So by this time, she is an established actress. And it was around this time, a little bit before this, that she started appearing on TV. She was in the original series of Star Trek. She was in an episode of that. She was in Batman as the Siren a couple of times, the <laughs> classic Adam West Batman. But, you know, even though I remember mostly from TV, she is one of those rare actresses who bounced a lot between yeah. TV and movies, which was not common then. Usually you were either a TV person or a movie person. Right. Now it's there's no barrier, really, but back then right. it was. So she's, she's yeah, pretty amazing. And um, I would say that her story is one of the most... Um, Iconic. It's not my favorite one, but it's definitely one of the most iconic in here. Right. Well, she's leading up in the tail end with these last five or so people, and she stops uh, in the middle of this catacomb because she brooch that she's wearing has fallen, and she's looking for it. And she's like, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. And the guys kind of help stop and help her find the brooch. And then they can kind of see the tour guide and the rest of the group disappear further down. And then as they proceed, uh, they proceed through an opening that leads him into this huge chamber, and there's a almost skull-shaped rock and a man sitting on a like a big stone chair in front of it. Mm-hmm. And they all just kind of wander in, and the door shuts behind them. And this whole notion that this could happen was scary to me as a kid. Oh, sure, yeah. <laughs> it was like, you know, because my family would go on trips, and we'd kind of do interesting things. We went on a mine tour once, you know, and, mm-hmm. and this whole notion that, oh, my God, like, here's like a normal, controlled thing, right? Like a tour group in a tourist attraction in the middle of the day or whatever that suddenly gets lost in here and way late and now they've entered this secret scary chamber with this mysterious old man sitting up on the throne in a in a robe right and he's not you know uh, it's not the crypt keeper of the 90s i mean this is just a guy in a robe but uh, he's still effectively creepy and the slamming of the door is creepy. The Crypt Keeper just kind of starts kind of casual conversations. Who are you? Where did you come from? All in good time. Look, how do we get out of here? All in good time. I'm in a hurry. It can wait. Well, I really can't wait. I have an appointment. Sit. All of you. Please sit down. 
I assure you, I have a purpose. What purpose? Why did you come in here? I don't know. I was just driving by and... Something made me. And what are your plans when you leave here? And it just cuts immediately to the first story, which is on IMDb. They're given titles. They're not titled. You know, we don't get a title card or anything, but yeah. uh, it's, it's all through the house. And those of you who are fans of the podcast will be thinking you're having deja vu because we have done this <laughs> short before, but we did the Robert Zemeckis directed version from season one of the television series. And we specifically said that we were doing that one because we knew that we would eventually get to this movie and we didn't want to do the same one twice, but they're virtually the same. Yeah. And it's it's a very simple story. It's Christmas Eve and her house, uh, this opulent house, is um, decorated beautifully for Christmas and her husband is walking around. I think he's got, you know, a drink and he's got a little gift that he puts under the tree and he has a seat in chair or recliner or something and you see some sort of instrument picked up from the fireplace. I guess it's a poker, but it looks more like a sword or something. Mm. Before you even really see her, you just see this sword come down on the back of the husband's head, and then it pans up, and it's her. Yeah, She's killed her husband very calmly. <laughs> she goes to the safe, uh, pulls out an insurance policy, and so we know that she... Has a motive. <laughs> right. And then from upstairs, you hear, mommy, mommy, mommy. And she goes running upstairs, and you're just like, oh, shit. You know, <laughs> there's a kid, too. Yeah, and that's the thing. In both in both this and the original, I really don't understand what this woman's plan was. Like, right. what are you going to do with the body? <laughs> You've got a kid upstairs. Anyway, yeah. the, the only other notable thing is, you know, after she kills him, she picks up that present that he had put under the tree and she opens the card and it says something like to the most wonderful wife a guy could ever want or something like that. Mm -hmm. Something very kind and, and heartfelt. And she just kind of rolls her eyes and opens it up and it's that brooch from the beginning. Yeah, which is interesting, right? Because what the crypt keeper had asked her in the crypt was, what are you planning to do after you leave here? Right. So how did she already have the brooch when later, presumably, she's supposed to be getting it for Christmas, right? Right. So it's a little jarring when that happens. And at one point I wondered, is this a mistake? But no, later on we'll find out. But I really like this story because it's. it might be one of the, I think it's one of the stronger of the set, because all of these stories are quite short. Yeah. And they're quite economical. You might say too economical, but I like what it does here in a very, very short time, and I think very effectively, is it brings this husband in who seems to be full of joy. Mm-hmm. He's smiling. He's written his letter to the best wife. He's like, with glee, he's putting the package under. So you go, okay, this is a happy man who loves his wife. Then you see his wife kills him, and she's pretty stone-faced about it she runns over pulls out the insurance policy and you see okay here's the motivation she has an insurance policy i think in the hbo series they add like a a lover uh, an affair yeah, yeah a lover here they don't have that and then 
she's like dragging the body to kind of clean it up just like I saw a reviewer who said something like, just like it's one more damn thing she has to take care of on For Christmas. Christmas yeah. you know? and, and then you hear mommy, mommy, and she runs upstairs and you realize that they have a little girl, right? Mm-hmm. I I mean, maybe I've just become really sensitive, but like my heart just, I was just like, this is all kinds of wrong. And I just hate this woman. Yeah, yeah <laughs> you know? she, she's wicked and heartless and greedy. I mean, she's just... She's a bad person. Yeah, and you get this all in in three minutes. It's great, right? Right, <laughs> and and the daughter asks about daddy, and I don't remember what her response is, but like it's obvious that the daughter loves her father. This can't be a bad man. The mom is oh just God. wicked. She says good night, mommy, and then mom's like okay, and then she starts to close the door and she yells out the door, "Good night, daddy." <laughs> yeah, it's terrible. And then she hears on the radio um, that a killer, an insane killer, has escaped from the mental institution and is said to be prowling about in a Santa suit in this area. He's terribly dangerous and be careful. And then Santa immediately shows up. Um, mm-hmm. menacing outside her house. Eventually, you know, she sees him out there. She runs around locking all the windows and doors. Uh, I, I actually thought it was kind of amusing that once she got all the windows and doors locked, she didn't really seem particularly concerned. Like, eh, no, he probably won't get in. Yeah. But her next conundrum is she doesn't, she can't call the police <laughs> because her dead husband is lying in the floor. And how is she going to explain that? So she doesn't call the police. And like you said, this happens very quickly. I don't remember exactly how it happens, but as she's kind of running around, she runs into the living room and sees she had pulled a curtain. There's like an entryway for the front door. And then she had pulled a curtain to kind of close off the entryway. And she sees that the curtains are blowing in the wind. And, uh, I think her daughter steps out and says, he came, mommy, he came, Santa came, I let him in. (laughs) And then, and then she pulls Santa in and, uh, in the uh, remake, the HBO remake, it just ends on Mary Ellen Trainer just screaming and screaming and screaming. Here we actually see Joan Collins get strangled by Santa and then that's it. That's the end. And it cuts back to the crypt. It's very short, but I really liked it. You know, Joan Collins gets top billing in this movie. She only has 15 lines, and they're very, very brief. I can only imagine that this took little to no time at all to film. But Mm. uh, it's fun. And it sets a nice pace and a nice tone for the rest of the movie. Yes, that's right. Now, the next one is the one that has stuck with me. For all of these years, uh, in so much so that I remember, you know, it's, it's I saw this as a kid, and then for years after, I couldn't tell you where I saw it. I just it just stuck in my head and bothered me for a very very long time. <laughs> and it also stars one of my all time favorite actors, Peter Cushing. Oh wait, that's not the next one. You skipped that's Reflection of one? Death. Oh, you're right. I'm, okay, all right. All right, forget what I said. Yeah, oh, you're no. right. Reflected. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. So I'm going to revise exactly what I said. <laughs> all right. This next one, for some reason, is probably my least favorite <laughs> of them because I feel like it projects its ending a mile away, and so I was just a little impatient for it to get there. But I've also seen it before, so um, maybe you have a different take. Anyway, the Crypt Keeper talks to a man. Carl. And says, uh, well, how about you? And he says, well, I'm on my way to see my wife and children. 
he, uh, you know, as soon as that's the thing, like they're introduced very quickly, like, okay, what are you going to do? And then it cuts just to the next one. Yeah. And when we see him, he has bags packed. Yes. Um, and he's, he's saying goodbye to his wife and kids seemingly just for a business trip. Mm-hmm. But as soon as he leaves, he doesn't go on a business trip. He goes to, um, his mistress's apartment. I don't know what the relationship is. Uh, I, I may be secretary, but her name is Susan. And they leave together and they, you know, they're running away together. Susan drives and uh, Carl falls asleep while she's driving and he starts talking in his sleep. Um, he's he's upset and he screams no and wakes up from this bad dream. Immediately after that, they're in a terrible wreck. They're run off the road. The car is in flames, but he has apparently survived. But now all of a sudden, the camera work shoots to his point of view. So we're seeing everything from his POV shot. And he looks for Susan, but she's nowhere to be found. And so he starts wandering around and he wanders under a bridge and he comes upon this homeless man. And the homeless man takes one look at him and and kind of has a look of horror on his face and runs away. Um, he tries to flag down a driver, but the driver is also scared. He goes home. I think, if I noticed correctly, that the name on his doorbell was different. Yes. Um, but it's his, but it's his house, and his wife opens the door, but she's also scared of him, and, and there's a new man there. Mm-hmm. Um, presumably her husband. So he goes back to Susan's apartment, and she opens the door, and you can tell by the way that she's acting that she's blind. And she is shocked, not by his physical appearance, but just by the fact that he's there, because she says, you died. That was two years ago, and you were dead. And so he's like, what? And he looks down at the glass tabletop and sees his reflection, and he's burned, and he looks... It's like a zombie-looking guy. Yeah, I mean, he, yeah. he looks horrible. Quick cut, he wakes up from that dream again in the car and screams no. And it's a Final Destination moment where, like, is he going to act quickly enough to change things? No, he's not. (laughs) (laughs) They have the wreck again, uh, and he's dead. And that's the end of the story. I didn't love it, but it was economic enough. You know, it, it was quick. Um, I, I think that the pacing of this one had somewhat of a negative effect on the characterization. I didn't really feel like I mm. knew these characters. I didn't really care about them. Like, there wasn't that, yeah. you know, his wife seemed nice, but it's not like we lingered with her or anything. So, you know, I I didn't have that same kind of emotional trigger that I had with the daughter in the first one. So I didn't really care. But not a bad story, nonetheless. I agree with you wholeheartedly that this next story is the best of the bunch. And I just think that it's... <sighs> It's it's a perfect Tales from the Crypt story, but there's also a kind of sentimental beauty about it that mm. I think is just is actually very sad and very touching. And Peter Cushing stars, and I think that this everything that I've just said is entirely because of him. Oh um, yeah, he just does an amazing job in this 
part. And he wanted this role. He was offered a different role. I don't remember which one. But he read this role and he connected with it and he wanted to do it. And they expanded the role for him. Mm-hmm. And some people, you know, I, I've only seen a couple of things, a few things that Peter Cushing has been in. But some of his fans believe this to be maybe one of his best performances. And I think he actually said that it was one of his favorite performances ever. And he apparently put a lot of his own heart into it. And maybe part of the reason he asked for the role is that he himself had been grieving his wife's death. And this is about a man whose wife, you know, died uh, a while ago, and he's grieving it. And so it probably comes through in his acting for sure. Oh, you can see it. Yeah. How interesting, right, that you get a role like this. Uh, What other movie did we do where something similar had happened, Craig? Do you remember? I have no idea. Where the actor... Was it The Omen? I don't remember. I can't remember which movie it was, but it was a similar deal where an, an, an actor had really gunned for the role and they, they didn't even think he would take it because it was kind of hitting too close to home. Yeah, because he had lost a child. I don't remember if it was The Omen. It may have been. Anyway, oh, yeah. So a younger guy speaks up. I mean, he's like 30s probably uh, and is basically like, all right, tell my story now. You know, if we're going to do this, get it over with. <laughs> And we jump right into this story, and you see Peter Cushing as this old man who's living in a home in the English countryside, I guess, sort of, uh, across the street from this young guy who spoke up. The guy's name is James, and he lives, uh, I guess, with his father. This man uh, who Peter Cushing plays, his name is Arthur Grimsdyke, and he is just the neighborhood kind gentleman toward kids you know he has kids over at his house he makes toys for them he has a bunch of dogs that he clearly cares for and loves and is entertaining the children and uh james has nothing bad but bad stuff to say about him you know it's his typical class kind of thing he's a upper class dick and he thinks that this man's house is an eyesore and his dogs are barking and he keeps the children around makes things noisy and he's bringing the property values in the neighborhood down. And wouldn't it be great to just get rid of him? Yeah, and he, and he's a garbage collector, so he must be disgusting. And mm-hmm. like, I'm sure the inside of his house is disgusting. That's what makes this one so, uh, gosh, heart-wrenching, I think, is because that guy, did you say his name was James? Mm-hmm. He's just such a dick like yeah he has absolutely no motivation to do anything to this guy other than that he doesn't like the there's no reason for him not to like him yeah he just decides that he doesn't and then he proceeds to destroy the man's life this man has done nothing but bring joy to the children of the neighborhood and this james guy just goes absolutely out of his way to completely destroy his life and it's heartbreaking to watch i mean he just he chips away at it gradually the first thing he does is he uh in the middle of the night james goes over to grimsdyke's next door neighbor's house and digs up his beautiful prize rose garden and the next morning the neighbor man decides that it must have been grimsdyke's dogs even though the dogs are pinned up um, so the police come and take his dogs. I mean, this guy, yeah. he's a widower. He's all alone. He's childless. He's all alone. You know, he's got these dogs and he's got these neighborhood kids. The first thing they take away from him is his dogs. And being a dog guy, that gutted me. But then it just gets even, it just gets even worse from there. Yeah. So then, um, he decides to write a, a letter to the city council and persuades them to fire him from his job. 
right? And I don't remember what the rationale was for that. I, I, I do remember what the rationale is because it was so horrible. I, right before that, I should mention that uh, Grimsdyke throughout this is kind of trying to contact his wife through a Ouija board. And at one point, she either points to, I think points to, or no, he does, I can never remember what it's called, that kind of psychic writing Mm-hmm. where somebody's writing through him and he's kind of in a trance state or whatever and the word is danger so he he's aware that something might be happening but he has no idea what um mm-hmm. they the neighbor convinces the city council to have him fired he's up for retirement in like two or three months but this guy says if you fire him now you won't have to pay him his pension and you can hire somebody else at a much lower rate so they do yeah so not only do they take away his job but they take away his pension and this guy you just see the breakdown on his face he's just he just like is utterly beside himself but he's not running around screaming or yelling he just is a sad lonely old man and he doesn't know what to do and he doesn't have anyone to talk to except the pictures of his dead wife and eventually one warm spot in this sad sad tale one of his little dogs comes home and like it was just the sweetest (laughs) thing that he hears the dog barking he opens the door and he picks him up he's like oh like oh god just He's so happy to just have somebody, but the worst is yet to come. Then he basically writes some letters or something to the parents around the neighborhood and uh, says... The the bad guy does. Yeah, I'm sorry, James does, and says, hey, you know, aren't you worried that your kid is... Kids are playing with this this dirty old man? You know, basically calling him a child molester. Yeah. And to which the parents freak out, and so then they divert their kids away from the house, say, I don't want you going over there anymore. And so now he's like... I don't understand it. Your mama's so kind. Now this, no work... No children, no one to make toys for. Never mind. We've always got each other, haven't we, my dear? Hmm. That's all that matters. It's heartbreaking. Yeah, and then the neighbor has the entire town send him valentines, and so he's mm-hmm. super excited. On Valentine's Day, the mailman's like, oh, Mr. Grimstike, you got a lot of mail today. He's like, oh, that's nice, and he sits down, and he opens the first one, and it looks like a nice valentine, and every single one of them is brutally cruel. Valentine card. You're my only sweetheart. Could this be? Noisier children, loud as a bell, pungent as perfume, but you only smell. Hmm? Noisier children, loud as a bell, pungent as perfume, but you only smell. I don't think I like that. Yes, you think I like it. A tree is beautiful, if its owner prunes it, but our town isn't, because your presence through it. And I feel that, and that's, uh, that's it. You know, that's the, uh, straw that breaks the camel's back. And I don't blame this guy at all. You know, the, the neighbor, the neighbor across the street complains about hearing the dog barking. And he's like, that dog's been barking for days. So they go over there. First of all, the, the bad guy, James, is like, 
oh my god, his house is pristine. Like, he just assumed because he was a garbage collector that he would be a dirty person. And in fact, he's not. His house is very well kept, um, very nice. And But they find him, he, he has hung himself. Um, yeah, it's it's horrible. And even they seem a little surprised by that, uh, but not too sad about it. Then cut to one year later, and it's Valentine's Day again. And they're sitting in there just kind of talking, James and his father. And it's interesting, too, because you can see that his father is not really cool with what's happening, but he's also not doing anything to stop it. Yeah. You just see some discomfort, but he's you know doesn't seem to care enough to to do anything. Uh, and James sits down at his desk and whatever, and I think he absentmindedly pulls a drawer out, and there are some Valentines still in there. Um, and that reminds him you know, of the previous, uh, of, of what went down the previous year. And you almost see a flash of regret on his face, I think. I don't know. Am I wrong? Did you kind of detect that too? Uh, I regret, I don't know. But you, you see that there's at least some recognition, like, oh, maybe that was mean. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then a uh, shot of the graveyard, <laughs> just this classic smoky graveyard shot, comes up to a grave of uh, Grimsdyke, and then you see a hand come up through the grass, and it kind of cuts back and forth, and then he just kind of full-on comes out of the grave. So you know what's about to happen. And uh, I think James kind of comes out into the living room or something, and Grimsdyke is in there in full-on zombie, zombie mode yeah. and comes towards him. And I don't know if we hear a scream or something like that. And in the morning, his father comes around, comes in and sort of looking for him, uh, can't find anything, and then walks over and sees the desk, and he's face down on his desk, and is, there's blood and stuff on his shirt. And there's a crumpled up, uh, was it a box? Or is it just a crumpled up piece no, of paper? No, it's just a crumpled up piece of paper. Like, you can see the top part, but the bottom part is like crumpled up and folded over. Mm. He reads is, Happy Valentine's Day. You were mean and cruel right from the start. Now you really have no dot, dot, dot. And then the father pulls down the the page. And literally, James's heart <laughs> is cut out and wrapped up in the note. And it's still beating. Still beating. Uh, that was a nice yeah. touch. <laughs> a little silly, but yeah. Wow. This is a great story. I mean, it's just a oh. real... I just really like this story. And I, I can't say enough. You know, there... I. I, it's burned in my brain, the image, a close-up image of Peter Cushing's face and his eyes just completely welling with tears. And, and his lip quivering, and uh-huh. it is just, it's heartbreaking. Uh, it really is. It really, really is. And so, uh, again, it, it's nice to see the bad guy get his comeuppance, but of all of them... This is the one that is the most uh, heart-wrenching in an, a very good way. I think it gives the movie a little bit of gravity that it otherwise wouldn't have had. And mm-hmm. that's nice. It's a nice balance. Oh, God. It's it's amazing. And without Peter Cushing's performance, it just it wouldn't hit the same way, I don't think. Yeah, it's the just... role was not, it wasn't even a speaking role until Peter Cushing uh, asked specifically for it. And in asking specifically for it, he, he took a pay cut. That's how badly he wanted to do it. And, uh, and it, it clearly resonated with him. And again, with such a simple story, more or less, like uh, the layers here, you know, he's 
doing this Ouija board connection with his dead wife. You know, that made me think about Harry Houdini. Do you know Harry Houdini was, you know, he we, we know he was obsessed with the occult because he missed his wife. He wanted to be with his wife, and he ended up exposing mediums simply because he was going to mediums, trying to find a way to connect with his dead wife in the afterlife, and being frustrated because he couldn't find a single one that was honest that was actually capable of doing and that's when he started his career exposing the mediums it's all in the process of actually trying to hoping that there is an authentic one he just wanted to be with his wife and it's interesting here like that Grimsdyke is dabbling in the occult himself trying to communicate with her it just it's a layer of desperation yeah yeah. and resonance that just it was unnecessary really but boy it adds a nice touch it's it's interesting it is. And and then, of course, cut back to the crypt for a second. And the next person up is a guy named Ralph. And this one, by the way, is called Wish You Were Here. And what's interesting to me about this one is it literally is the story of the monkey's paw. Yeah. And they even reference that fact. <laughs> like, yep. uh, what we're going through seems an awful lot like the monkey's paw. Yeah, it does. Because it's, it's the exact, exact same story. story. <laughs> <laughs> With maybe a slightly gory twist at the end. But but yeah, you're right. It's the same thing. And, and EC Comics would do this, too. Most of what they wrote was original, but they would often say, hey, and now we're featuring an adaptation of a story by Ray Bradbury. And so they would give credit where credit was due. And there were some really great little stories in there. Like, they even took his, his short story, Dark Carnival, which, you know, was made into eventually something wicked this way comes and they adapted that in their comic so uh, it wasn't unusual for tales from the crypt to take a classic story and do their own adaptation of it as well yeah i mean this is probably one of my uh i said that the second one was my least favorite this one wasn't really high up there either just because i am so familiar with the monkey's paw story right and it's fine i mean they tweak the details enough and again, it's really short. Um, Ralph is a bad businessman, and so his lawyer tells him that he needs to sell all of his real estate and his property um, if he wants to, you know, even land on his feet. Um, he, when he tells his wife, his wife t- just happens to amble over to a statue, like <laughs> being sad that she has to sell her stuff. She's like, Wait a second. I feel like I remember that whoever we bought this statue from told us it grants us three wishes. And wasn't it, it's like an oriental statue, and it's like, I don't know where they got it, where did he say, like in Singapore or something like that? And then she reads this rhyming English inscription at the base of it. (laughs) Right, but the the bottom is kind of rubbed out, so they can't really get the whole inscription, Uh which is ominous. And and that's where one of them makes a reference to the monkey's paw. I think it's the husband. But the wife, the wife offhandedly just wishes for lots and lots of money. And Ralph's like, don't, don't do that. (laughs) I've read the story. It doesn't end well. (laughs) But too late. And so uh, seconds later, the phone rings and it's Ralph's lawyer calling him in. And he's like, "Uh, you need to come in. It's about money. It's important. He gets in the car and um, he's driving along. And then there's this creepy guy who had been lingering outside the house ever since the wish was made. And now this guy is chasing Ralph. Ralph's driving his car. This guy's chasing him on a motorcycle. Yeah. He's got like a skull helmet or skull mask on. It's Which very... you don't really see until Ralph looks in his rearview mirror and sees it very close up. <laughs> it's so bizarre. I think that this was supposed to be 
like Death Incarnate, mm. but it looks very much like a man in a mask. Um, yeah. <laughs> they didn't do much to make it look supernatural. I mean, it just, it looks like a dude in a mask, but whatever. He's, he's in a car accident and he's killed. Um, but is what, just like in the monkey's paw, the exact same thing happens. The wife, because of his insurance policy now is very, very wealthy. So she got her wish. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> then, uh, the lawyer comes over. <laughs> I love this. It is so the monkey's paw, but the best part about it is how they keep referencing the monkey's paw in it, mm-hmm. right? Just sort of like we're thinking it. At least the movie kind of acknowledges it. The lawyer comes over, you know, to give her the money and say, you know, this is the insurance plan. And she mentions her, the wish and she says, oh, now I want to wish him back. And he's like, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. Because I read a similar story where something like this happened. And the dead son came back how he was, mangled and stuff, And but she does it anyway. She tries to trick it, I mean, and that's common, too. Like, what does she say? She says, I want him back like Just he as was, he was before ju- the accident. Just before the accident, right. Mm-hmm. And those doors open. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Four creepy supernatural pallbearers come in, drop his, his coffin off in there, and leave. And it turns out that he died of a heart attack just before the car crash. So he's <laughs> right. still dead in the coffin. <laughs> right. So then she thinks that she'll outsmart it again, and she wishes that Ralph were alive again right now and forever. Mm. And he immediately wakes up writhing and screaming in pain, and the the lawyer's like, What's happened? What have you done? I wished him alive again forever. Don't you realize he's been embalmed? His veins are filled with embalming fluid burning into him. You know, the implication here is that he's now doomed to an eternity of this suffering and so she starts hacking at him with like <laughs> an axe or something um his guts are flying out and but he won't die the hand is crawling across his chest he can't he won't die and i remember this story vividly from the comics and uh and the very last panel of this is this wife who is just standing there with an almost maniacally insane look on her face as she has literally hacked this body to tiny little bits that are still moving and twitching around (laughs) like just a pile of pulp and goo that is still moving in eternity. It's it's pretty terrifying idea, actually. (laughs) Yeah, it is. And that's another one that they remade under a different title for the television series oh did they Mm -hmm. the last Mm -hmm. one is blind alleys and i thought this one was good too in a satisfying way um this one's about a guy named major rogers uh, a military guy apparently who is taking over as the new director at the elmridge home for the blind and he has a german shepherd named shane and basically what it comes down to is it's a a home i suppose for blind men um most of these men are elderly and immediately you know it seems like they have things pretty nice when he arrives but he immediately begins to neglect them it's a terrible winter outside but he turns the heat off at eight o'clock at night because he tells them there's no reason for them to be out of bed after that time um, he changes their food rations and only gives them bad food. And there's this one 
blind man who kind of serves as the representative for all of them, and his name is Carter. And he's played by Patrick McGee. He was one of the only people that I recognized in this movie. And it took me a second, but I quickly realized that he was the innkeeper from Monster Party in the Hoongu story. Yes. Remember that? <laughs> I do. I do remember that. And he's a pretty famous actor of this time in his yeah, life. Yeah, and I, recogni- I recognized him from... When we watched that movie, I recognized him and did some investigating, and he was uh, in A Clockwork Orange, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're right. He's done quite a bit of stuff, but he's good Yeah, he's really role. good. He's a bit of a... Um, I don't know. He has a bit of a Doc Brown look to him in this, doesn't yeah, he? <laughs> the way uh, his hair is kind of wild. More stuff, ominous. Less comedic, faced. more ominous, but yes. Oh, for sure, yeah. Cra- a little crazy-eyed. I mean, he's not crazy. In fact, he seems very... Sane and smart. And he's very patient, too, right? Right. He keeps mm-hmm. going into this man's office and saying, Sir, you know, the men are complaining about the food rations. Sir, we're getting a little more hungry. Sir, so-and-so needs medical treatment. You know, he's freezing and all this stuff. And every time that he goes into the office, it's like... There is um, Major Rogers, who's uh, got his legs up on an easy chair with his dog there, and he's got a nice warm fire beside him, or or he's, a bit, he's a big dining, meal. yeah, dining on steak and all that. So I mean, they, they make a very strong contrast, which which is also, I mean, I think there's an implication here that well, they're blind anyway, so he doesn't think they're going to even know or notice, or or well, he, he probably doesn't even care anyway. Right. But at one time, at one point in there, after I think the last time, McGee leaves uh, his office and he stops by a painting on the wall. And he says, oh, Mr. So-and-so, who I think was the previous guy, something like, you never would have let this happen or, or something like that, which I thought was an interesting touch. He also explains to the major, he's like, you don't understand how losing one sense affects a person. When you lose one sense, then your other senses are heightened. So what he's trying to explain is that they're suffering more. You know, Mm -hmm. the fact that, you know, they they are more sensitive to the cold. Right. And and it tastes worse to them, the food. Right. But but he just doesn't care. And, And at some point, the residents come in in a group and are a little bit more adamant, and the major basically sicks his dog on them. You know, there, there's not anything that they mm. can do. The The last straw is when one of the patients freezes to death in the night, and this is a patient who has been sick for days. Carter has been trying to convince the major to get a doctor in, and um, finally, when the major comes to check on the guy himself, he's he's dead, and and that's the last straw. And then the residents put into effect a plan, and it's a very smart plan, and it's uh, wicked, and it's it's good. Yeah, they get his dog. They lure his dog with food that they've been saving like over days or something. Right. right? Every right. everybody gives like a scrap of meat, and the plate gets passed around. Right. This is cool. Like right. Like it's like they all have a plan now. Like this isn't yep. one guy's execution. It's like they've all agreed to do this. So they lure the dog away uh, into a room in the basement. The major comes downstairs looking for his dog, and they lock him in a separate room right next to his dog. Mm-hmm. So he can hear the dog barking, and the, they're, they're starving the dog. In the meantime, they get to work hammering and banging and stuff like that, and the major can hear something's going on, but he doesn't know what. Uh, and we can see these guys picking up wood and razor blades and all this stuff. It's like, what are they going to do? Eventually, they swing open the door of his room and 
he steps out and he is in gosh it's like saw before saw mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he he's stepping into a big trap that is a tunnel made of wood and chicken wire and barbed wire and he starts walking through it and it gets more and more narrow until it gets to this point where it's so narrow and they have put razor blades in there sticking straight out of the wood on both sides of the walls that he has to extremely gingerly get sideways and very carefully and get nicked in the process right um squeeze between these two rows of razor blades and he gets to the other end of it there's a door at the other end and it swings open and it's his dog and his dog is now hungry and just rabid and ravenous and he immediately starts to attack him which forces him to turn around <laughs> and run <laughs> into those razor blades uh, we don't really see do we we don't really see anything happen not a lot um, we just know what's going to happen uh just a few close ups you know they turn the lights off on him too right oh yeah and great. just leave him there yeah the movie is only rated uh pg and it is you, i'm not surprised that you saw it on a Saturday afternoon, you, yes. could, you could air this anytime during the day. The only the, the only scene is the one from which you were here, where the guts come out. They for the initial release, they did cut that for the uh, original release, but they stuck it back in later. And you know, it, it's it's gross, but it doesn't look real at all. It, it's not even bloody. It's like white. So yeah, it's tame as far as gore and violence are concerned, but um, the subject matter is still unsettling and um, spooky, and I like it a lot. I liked all the stories. You know, we have to finish up the wraparound. Um, basically, the stories are all told. Does he just tell them they can leave? I think they say that they want to leave, and they're like, all right, now you've told all the stories, and they demand to leave, and he says, oh, you, you're not going to leave. You can't leave. And that's when he tells them straight up, um, I wasn't warning you what would happen. Um, but I'm telling you what's already happened. You have all died without repentance. And, right. Uh, so then it it makes sense now with um, her brooch, right, that she right. had on. That's why she had it on now. They're in a hell, basically, now. I don't know, you know, I mean, how did they get there from a thing? You know, maybe they all woke up in this tour group, whatever. Who knows? But I mean, there's a lot of questions about that. But it's a cool twist. Yeah. And, the, you know, the door opens and now it's just opening into a fiery inferno. And the first guy, I don't remember who it is, um, kind of falls in and, you mm-hmm. know, you see the shot of him screaming, falling into the fiery pit. But then the rest of them, it's kind of like they just accept right. their fate. Like they just, they just, <laughs> the the movie ends with them just walking through the door and yeah. The door closes behind them, and then the Crypt Keeper addresses the audience directly with some sort of cryptic message at the end. No, he's like, and now who's next? Yeah, maybe you. (laughs) (laughs) That's classic. Yeah, it's a it's a good movie, and it was fun for me to watch just because it was a nice callback to one of my very favorite shows. I mean, not even a a callback for me. I mean, obviously this came first, but um, I hadn't seen it. So it was nice to kind of dive back into that twisted, wicked little world for a minute. Like you said, it, it feels a little bit cheap, but I attributed that mostly to the time more so than to the quality. Mm. The acting, I think, is quite good. Yeah. Overall. It's pretty solid throughout. Yeah. Well, and we've got great actors in here. 
Ralph Richardson is the Crypt Keeper, and he is, a by this point, just a veteran, mostly of the stage, you know, one of these sort of John Barrymore contemporaries, you know, sort of legendary in the English, in the British theater. And so he would have been very recognizable to the people there. And then and he even played, I mean, up until like 1981, I don't know if you ever saw The Time Bandits. That's one of my favorite Mm-mm. movies that Terry Gilliam did. He's in Dr. Zhivago, you know, very, very well-respected actor. And he sort of plays it that way. I mean, this guy's 70-something. He's sitting up there on the throne, really not moving much, just gravely speaking to each of these folks and very seriously. And that... It's fine. It's fine for this movie, I think. But as a Tales from the Crypt movie, especially based on the comics, just to not have that sort of gleefully punny host in between all of these things was uh, the only downer. But I I think that they made the choice they felt like they needed to make at that time period. They they struggled with it. They struggled. You know, the script went through several different drafts and... Um, in one, the Crypt Keeper only directly addressed the audience. In another, there was no Crypt Keeper at all. And then we ended up with what we got. Yeah, I mean, it's de- it's definitely different than the iteration that I am accustomed to. And I prefer the iteration that I'm accustomed to. But, you know, mm. this is it. This is its own thing. So, yeah, I'm not I, I, I don't feel a need to compare. This is its own thing. It came first. So I think it's fine. I have my own. I mean, again, I, I'm so nostalgic for this movie because I watched as a kid. It made such a deep impression on me. Those two things, the wraparound story, I thought just was terrifying idea at the time. And then this, oh God, man, that poor old man Grimstike. just getting destroyed was stuck with me for for the rest of my life after I watched it. And by the way, did you know that um, Milton Sabotsky, who wrote, who's credited as the writer on this, he actually was a producer of the Monster Club. And we talked about the Monster Yeah, and he also produced a bunch of these other amicus ones as well. So um, he wrote uh, The Vault of Horror. Yeah, this movie inspired, I mean, like you said, there was a sequel. But it also inspired modern horror writers and directors. Um, I think it was Stephen King and George Romero. Is that who it was? Mm-hmm. Who were yes. they? They were actually going to remake this movie. And that... The result of that ended up being Creepshow, and then, of course, there were several sequels to that. There, I think that really most, if not all, of the modern horror anthologies that we watch and enjoy owe at least some credit to this movie. Oh yeah, for sure. It's not, and it's not the first anthology, but it definitely made a, a deeper impact than some of the others. Right, like, right. You know. Uh, just probably also because of the property and the people involved. So, solid movie. I'm so glad we kicked off our month of anthologies with this movie because, uh, uh, you know, I think you've had a movie previously where it's just like, okay, once we do this one on the podcast, I can uh, I can die a happy man. Yeah. For me, this is basically that movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and you've wanted to do it forever, and I don't know why it's taken us so long to get to it, but ah. I don't think that there was any other choice to kick off no. this month. Well, uh, thank you again for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend. You'll find us online just by Googling Two Guys in a Chainsaw Podcast. Just find us anywhere we are, on Facebook or Twitter or our website, and uh, leave us a comment there. Let us know what movies you'd like to see and what you thought of this episode and this film yourself. Until next time, I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. With Two Guys in a Chainsaw. Chainsaw.